You're listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. The following audio is from the weekly gatherings of One Hope Church in Orlando, Florida. We pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen. We're going to be looking through the summer at the book of of 1 Timothy. And uh, I came up with a title, Our True Home living in the household of God. I actually thought about just labeling it true home. I thought that would be sort of edgy. And my wife said, nobody understands that. So I went to our true home. And uh, this is going to be our first uh, installment in that series. We're going to begin by, by having sort of an introduction to the book itself. In um, 1 Timothy, oh, no, go ahead to the next slide. Is a map, actually. We didn't get the map in? That's okay. Uh, in 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, Paul is writing Timothy. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So the Apostle Paul, we believe the setting for this is after he, at the end of the book of Acts, he's in Rome, uh, but many biblical scholars believe that he, he was set free from that time of imprisonment in Rome, and he continued to work in the Mediterranean uh, area and, and back into Ephesus at one point, maybe to Spain, which was his plan, which he says in the book of Romans, and then circling back into the Aegean area, the Aegean Sea. And apparently he's there at one point with Timothy, and he leaves Timothy there, and he travels on to Macedonia, which is up in the northern part, of the Aegean Sea, and he's writing Timothy some instructions. And that's why he said, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm giving you these, I'm writing you these instructions in case I'm delayed. He says, so that people will know how they ought to conduct themselves in God's household, the pillar, the foundation of the truth. Paul is saying that's what we need. We need a household. We need a household to keep us in the truth, just ignore that over there, all right? <laughs> and and we, we need a household to transform our lives. Now, some of you have, have had the privilege of, of living in developing countries, countries that don't have a huge infrastructure, that don't have a lot of government programs. And in those developing countries, survival is really based on being embedded in a household. Embedded in an extended family, moms, dads, kids, grandparents, aunts, and uncles. And to be somehow excluded from that household, to be out on your own, is an incredibly, incredibly dangerous place. And so the whole countries operate as extended households. Actually, we call that a a patronage system, where alliances are made between households and larger groupings provide protection, Uh, They can often go a bit off the rails and provide for corruption as well. But in those developing countries, and in the New Testament, this is exactly what we have. There's no government services. There's no welfare. There's no unemployment insurance. If your husband dies and you're a woman and you're not embedded in a household, you're you're in a bad place. And so Paul is drawing this analogy. We need a household. Because it's the, it's the pillar, it's, it's the support. And what allows us to, to 
preserve and to, and to understand and, in a sense, to, to explain or explicate what the gospel means through transformed lives. That's what we are. We're a household. But it's interesting to note that Paul says, I, I'm writing instructions about how you ought to conduct yourselves. So he's saying there's, there's something given, there's something true, there's something that we didn't make up about this, this household, and that our lives are supposed to come into conformity with it. Now, I'm sure there's lots of different ways to, to color you know, in between the lines, but there are lines. We're a household. And so in any household, we want children to respect their parents. We want people to be faithful, husbands to be loyal and loving to their wives. There, there are ways that are appropriate to conduct yourself in a household. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I want, I want to write you, Timothy, so that you can remind the church, particularly the one in Ephesus, because this letter wasn't just going to Timothy. He was going to read this publicly. And it was going to be probably read throughout the churches in Asia Minor. Ourselves up as we go along. Because we're made in the very image and likeness of God. God's household has structure. And there are ways that we need to conduct ourselves so that we are that pillar, that support of the truth. That we don't embarrass God and His Word. That we don't um, represent him incorrectly to the world that we hold strongly to the word of God so that's sort of the the flow of the book he's going to talk about how living together in a household supports the very truth of the gospel both in word but also in transformed lives indeed so this takes us to very back to the beginning to the very first chapter do we have that Chapter 1, up there. What the Apostle Paul writes in that first chapter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Now, as I said before, this isn't going just to Timothy. These letters were meant to be read to the whole church. And then a standard greeting, which we see in every one of Paul's letters, grace, Mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And in the next slide, in verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people, not genealogy, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which he says is by faith. By faith. The goal of this command, he says, this is a great verse. The goal of this command is to love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Unfortunately, he goes on, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently is good if one uses it properly. And I was responding to those who were trying to teach the law, but they have no idea how the law is actually to be used. He says, we know it's good if we use it in the right way. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. I remember being surprised the first time I read that verse. The law isn't for the righteous. The law is for lawbreakers and rebels. 
the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to, the, to me, the Apostle Paul says. So that, that sin list, which we see other places in the Apostle Paul, it actually is based on the second half of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Where we're supposed to honor our father and mother. We're not supposed to commit adultery. We're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to steal. So the Apostle Paul is, in a sense, in, in sort of ad hoc. He's not trying to be exhaustive. He's not trying to give us every possible thing. But he's giving us a representative sample that the law is for those actually who break the law. Well, that unfortunately includes me as well. <laughs> who are unrighteous. But in these verses, what I, what I saw most clearly is in the next slide, if we have it, is that we together in this household of God, we preserve the truth of the gospel through word and deed, through our doctrine and life. And this is the very beginning of the letter because the Apostle Paul knows that everything else he's going to talk about, how we conduct ourselves, how we live in this household of God, everything is based on getting this right. That we would be able to hold on to the, the truth of God's Word. That it would be preserved in our fellowship. And that our lives would be based and built upon it in a knowing way, by faith, not by some sort of moralism or legalism. That's really the beginning point of this whole book. And the Apostle Paul wants to make sure that we get it and that we start with the right foundation. And so if this is the, the correct understanding of these first 11 verses, the first thing that we're supposed to do is to defend the gospel. We're to defend the gospel as a, as a household, as a church. We're, we're to preserve it. Now we think, is that a difficulty? But unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, it has been a difficulty. So easily people have, have wandered away that many years before. And already there are people who are misusing the Word of God, who, who are speculating about genealogies from the Old Testament, attaching it uh, to myths. The Apostle Paul, when he gathered the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, he warned them, he said, wolves will come from among your own members and try to devour the flock. So the, the tendency, the, the natural tendency of, of the fallen human heart is not to preserve God's Word. It's, it's not to align our lives with God's Word. Our natural tendency, our own desires, our own views above the authority of God's Word. So he wants us, he's telling Timothy, I... I, I I want you. No, he doesn't say, I want you. He says, I command you. There's a, there's a duty, there's an obligation involved to defend and preserve God's Word. It's interesting, there are three times that the word command is used in these first 11 verses. The first one is where Paul says that I'm an apostle, not by my own choice. And we know from the story of Paul, follow Jesus Christ because he was the, the, the number one persecutor of the church. But it was Jesus' command to him when he met him on that road to Damascus. And in that blinding light, 
threw him from the horse and told him who he was and told him to get up and go get baptized because God was sending him to the Gentiles. He didn't really ask Paul's opinion, did he, in that encounter with the risen Lord. So the Apostle Paul knew that, that he had a command. Actually, at the end of this, he says that the gospel is given him, it's entrusted to him by Jesus Christ. The second place we see the word command is in verse 3. We saw it in verse 1 and in verse 3, where he tells Timothy, I am commanding you to tell these people who are distorting God's word to stop it. Has the, the duty to defend, to preserve, to protect the word of God. Now we're going to see later in the book that that elders and deacons have a special responsibility, but every single person in the church has that responsibility. That it's your job, but first of all, to know the Word of God. How can you defend it? How can you preserve it if you haven't invested your life in, in understanding and taking in the Word of God? We've got Bible studies operating. We've got a men's Bible study and two women's Bible studies. If the Word of God is not something that you just live and breathe, if, if it's not simply the blood that runs through your veins, then the first step is to, in defending and preserving is to, is to study it. We'll be glad to tell you how you can be part of those either men's or women's Bible study. So we're to, we're to defend the gospel. It's a command, it's a duty, but we also have the authority to do it. I mentioned in verse 11, the Apostle Paul says that this gospel was entrusted to him. He didn't invent it. He makes it very clear if you read the book of Galatians that Jesus himself revealed it to him. This word of God is actually the very word of God. Spoken to the apostles, not just the apostle Paul, but to the other apostles. And then gathered and saved and preserved and the apostolic scripture, the scriptures that was written or superintended by the chosen disciples of Jesus Christ himself. He chose them. And he promised them that the Holy Spirit would be given to them so they could, the, the Spirit would bring to mind, they would remember the things that he had said. He promised that the Holy Spirit would lead them into truth. And the church are indeed these rememberings, these truths that the Holy Spirit inspired through the apostolic witness, through the apostles, including the Apostle Paul himself. And so this means that, that we have the authority to defend and preserve and use the Word of God. I remember one time when I was a, a new Christian with Campus Crusade as a student up at the University of Florida. I was with one of our staff members, Roland. And early on, we were going into one of the dorms up at the University of Florida to talk to some students about Christ, to share the Word of God. And Roland could tell that I was pretty nervous. I was about, I think, maybe 18 years old. I don't know if I had done much of this. And I'm sort of hesitant there as we're about to go into the dorm. And Roland looked over and he said, John, these dorms. <laughs> he owns the whole university. And these students are only here because it serves his good pleasure. And what he was trying to tell me was that, was that God is the authority over all things. He owns all things. He owns all people. And we have the authority because of the command that we're to go to all peoples. And we're 
We're to tell them the good news. We're to make disciples. We're to teach them all the things that Jesus commanded. We have his authority. Actually, that's what he says at the beginning of that passage in Matthew 28, isn't it? He says, all authority has been given and and preserve and defend this word. And we have the authority to use it. We have the authority to speak it in our culture. We have the the, uh, authority to build our lives on it. A few of us last year uh, went through a, a training process called Discipleship Making Movements Training. And one of the neat things about DMM is that whenever you're studying something in the Word of God and God speaks to you about something from the Word of God, you, you have the duty to share it. Could be with anybody. Could be with, with uh, friends or neighbors. So if God teaches you something about, about discipline, maybe discipline with money, One of the objectives in in DMM training is that that week, maybe you're sitting with a neighbor and you have a chance and you say, you know, one of the neat things I saw this week in the Word of how I use money. We we have the authority to do that. I know you may be nervous like I was going into the dorm rooms, but you have to remember that those people only live and move and exist because it serves God's good pleasure. And He's given us the command and the authority to share His Word to build our lives upon it so that, that our lives, in a sense, just simply reflect. We can't help it. It's, it's bubbling out of us this wisdom, this understanding that comes from God's Word. So that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. We as a household of faith are together learning and defending and sharing the Word of God. That's what we're supposed to do. But also, I think it's not just simply a, a, a verbal sharing because of that really wonderful command there in verse 5. That's the fifth command, or the, excuse me, the third command in verse 5. He's saying there that we're, we're to defend, we're to preserve the gospel, but we're also to demonstrate it. It's got to be, it's got to be shown in our lives. God's Word is applied in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he says the goal of this command, this command to, to defend the Word, to to preserve the Word, to share the Word. He says the goal is love, right? But a, a, a love that arrives from, from purity, uh, from a pure heart. I know one of my... Uh, I studied philosophy a long time ago, and one of my favorite was Kierkegaard. And he's got a little booklet, The Danish Philosopher. And it says, the name of the book is Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. I always thought that's a great definition. It may not be the only definition of purity, but, it, but if, a, if a metal is pure, it means that it's made up of one thing. It doesn't have a lot of other things in it. Uh, close to Christ. To be a good ambassador of Christ. Right? And, 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 and it also means that as we're demonstrating this, that there's a, there's a good conscience. That the Word is working in us and, and, and Sin is being confessed and the Holy Spirit is beginning to transform and change us. Not that we're in any ways perfect. We only get into this household by admitting that we're far from it, that we're actually sinners deserving God's punishment and wrath. But as the Word is working in us, transforming us, our, our conscience is agreeing with it. And we're, we're pleased to see the progress. Using the Word of God, these, these so-called teachers for their own gain, their own purposes. So through transformed lives together in the household, we're to demonstrate, to defend, and then to demonstrate. But all this is done, as as Paul will write in all of his letters, the key to it is that it's done by faith. 
And so he wants to contrast those who think they're knowledgeable about the law but have no idea about the law with a life that's lived by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in not only His work on the cross, but faith in His continuing presence with us now through the Holy Spirit. Faith that He has the ability to to change us from the inside out, particularly as we begin to do those things that, that He asks us, those means of grace in God's household. All the different disciplines that we find throughout the New Testament. But those are they're, they work in us. They become effective in us. Not by some moral striving, but by faith. And that's why he wants to contrast this idea of faith with the law. So he says, you know, we know the law is good. Actually, in Romans 7, there's a whole chapter that the Apostle Paul talks about, in a sense, his own sort of anthropology, what it means to be a fallen man dealing with God, the law and, and the Spirit and the transformation of the Spirit. And there he says, he says, we know that the law is holy. We know the commandment is holy. We know that it's, it doesn't transform. In verse 7 of chapter 7, he says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And he uses the example of coveting. He says, I read the command, thou shalt not covet. And lo and behold, I looked on my heart and all I could see was coveting. He said, so instead of the law sort of defeating that fallen tendency, it just sort of excited it. <laughs> it made it even worse. When I was um, up at uh, college, actually that same uh, year that, that Roland encouraged me not to be afraid to go in the dorms, I was playing a game of the, uh, what do you call it, the ragtag football, you know, where they flag like football, which is supposed to be a fairly harmless game, right? Well, I wound up with a broken collarbone. It's funny, I played four years of high school football and never broke a bone. <laughs> and I play one game of flag football, and I'm down at the Florida Infirmary. Well, I, I, hopefully the Florida Infirmary's gotten a little bit better, but they misdiagnosed it. They said, oh, you just have a sprained shoulder. Go home and exercise it. So I tried. <laughs> And the next day I came back and I said, I, I don't think this thing is sprained. <laughs> and so the, the, it, it wasn't that uh, great of state-of-the-art infirmary. He says, you need to go upstairs to the x-ray lab and get an x-ray and wait for it and then bring it back down to me. So I've got a broken collarbone and I trot up the stairs and they take an x-ray. And uh, a little while later they hand me, you know, the big x-ray sheet. I'm not real thrilled with, with my doctors at this moment. So I, I trot back down the stairs, and there's a big window in the stair. So I, I grab a hold of the x-ray with my teeth, because I can't use this arm, and I, I pull it out of the, you know, the covering that it's in, and I stick it up against the window, and there's a broken collarbone. <laughs> I can clearly see that's a broken collarbone. power to heal my broken collarbone. It was very helpful in that I stopped trying to exercise my sprained shoulder. It was very helpful as a diagnostic. It told me something was wrong. Something was really wrong with my collarbone. But it was absolutely powerless to heal it. And that's exactly what the law does. One of the functions of the law is to be an x-ray, to be a diagnostic. And it, there it, we stand in front of the, the x-ray machine of the law. They're broken. They're severely broken. They're fallen. And left to themselves, they'll just degenerate into something awful. 
something that, that absolutely hates God and hates heaven and has no place and can find no place with God or in heaven. That's the diagnostic tool of the law. When I look at the law and it says to love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, and to love your neighbors yourself, that law does nothing but condemn. It tells me something is drastically broken. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. So those who are coming along and mixing the Old Testament law with, with myth and all these other stories and somehow creating some sort of, of moralism. If you'll just do this, you'll just follow the law or a legal. We, we got to punch it out. We got to work it out. You're, you're on your own there to please God. The, the Apostle Paul says that's crazy. That's like asking an x-ray to heal your broken bone. It's just not possible. The law is good. It's holy. It's, it's, it's righteous. It's not that we ignore it. It's not that we say, oh, well, we can make up our own uh, rules. We can go any way that we want, which, of course, is exactly what our, our present society is saying, is that we're just plastic, we're malleable. You can be anything you want to be as long as it, it meets some sort of emotional need or provides some sort of emotional satisfaction. That's not what Paul is saying. There is a law. It's true, holy, and good. It tells us how we ought to act. How we ought to live our lives in the household of God. It can't be ignored. It is the basis of judgment that we'll all face. It's true and living and powerful. It just can't heal us. And so if the law is a diagnostic, what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to push us to Christ. It's like the tutor helping us to grow up and pushing us to faith in Jesus Christ. Where we encounter out, we found that we begin to keep the law. We begin to keep the law. Maybe not in its exact letter, but in, 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 in its deepest spirit and sense. That's why in Galatians 5, when the Apostle Paul gives us the list of the fruit of the Spirit, he ends it by saying that these things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, he says, against which there is no law. These aren't manufactured within you by law. They grow apart from the law. They grow through faith in Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe what Spirit, through the Word of God, that's what it means to be part of the household of faith. That's what it means to defend and preserve. It's the explaining of the Word of God as people see this transformation going on in our hearts. But that happens in a household. That happens in all these messy relationships we call the church. That's God's normal intended plan where the Word of God would, would take root and grow. And I don't know about you, but that's, for me, that's not always easy. In some sense, when Jan and I went on the staff of Campus Crusade, we were interviewed by a, a psychologist. It was the Henry Brandt Associates. And I could have swore the guy had been looking in my window, you know, peeking at me. And what he said to me, he said, John, he says, you're going to let very few people into your life. He says, it's going to be hard for you to let people in your life. I said, boy, you, you just pegged me. I've got a whole enterprise of how to keep people inconvenient people out of my life. I'm very good at it. <laughs> I probably learned it in my, in my family of origin. And so this, this call to demonstrate, to, 
to hold on to the Word of God, to explain it in the household of faith, for me means that I have to enter into the, the messiness of peace. There, well, you're not walking by faith. You're just on autopilot. <laughs> I get credit here when I do this. <laughs> That's what it means to be in the household of faith. To hold on to the Word of God, to learn it, to act on it, to know that with the authority to base our life on it and to speak it into the world and then, and then to have the Holy Spirit demonstrate what it actually means by living together even when it's difficult. That's how we conduct ourselves in the household of faith. All I want to do now is simply ask you to reflect on this. That God has said something to you about today, whether, it's, whether there's a, a fearfulness in, in, in a sense uh, vocalizing the, the Word of God in our present society, whether there's been a, a life of trying to please God through, through moral effort and not through transformation of the Spirit, or whether there's just uh, uh, that tendency that I have to pull away when people become inconvenient, and yet you know that that's the exact opposite of the way God transforms us. Or maybe there's something else that God has said to you. I just want to close in a, in just a time of silence and ask you to say to the Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? Am I conducting myself in the household of faith? Am I committing myself to the household of faith in such a way that the Word of God is seen to be the, the pillar and the foundation of all that we do? Let's just pray together for a minute. Father, in this... Uh, the time of silence, I, I do ask that we would reflect on your word. And that if there's something you want to say to us today, if you want to encourage us in soul of faith, then Lord, say that to us. Encourage us. If, if you want to say to us today, I'm so pleased in, in, in the transformation that's been happening as you study my word, say that to us, Lord. Encourage us. But if there's anything else that we need perhaps to, to trust you, to really give ourselves to the study of God's Word, to give ourselves to a household of faith unto others. Would you say that? Would you graciously say that to us so that this command results in love from a pure heart and a good conscience? Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. We encourage you to share what you've heard in conversation with family, friends, classmates, and coworkers. To connect with us or learn more, visit wehaveonehope.com.